Howdy folks, today we're talking about how to look great on camera. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Lutz, and if you enjoy this content, consider lending your support on buymeacoffee.com forward slash cameraShake to help us create more exciting episodes for you. Your support really does make a difference. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the other Larry at Platypod, the photographer, author, coach, and if you've been watching Kelby One, then you'll know his face very well indeed. Give it up for the man, the legend that is Larry Becker himself. Larry, how are you? Uh, great. I do not feel legendary, but uh, thank you very much. <laughs> I think for, for all the Kelby One viewers, you are legendary, <laughs> clearly. A lot of Kelby One folks know me, yes. Fantastic. Um, Larry, it's so great to have you on the show. Um, you know, we've been talking about you coming on the show for a little while. I'm, I'm really happy to, to have you on. Um, for all of our viewers and listeners uh, who may not necessarily be um, that acquainted with Kelby One, just give us sort of a helicopter view over um, your, because you've got decades of experience in, in video, um, in talking in front of the camera, in presenting, in photography. Just give us sort of the, the helicopter view. Uh, sure. About 35, 40 years, 35 years ago, um, I was into teaching this technology uh, about a specific device that was very popular at the time. It was called a Palm Pilot. And I was teaching Palm Pilots and I came out with the first ever video about Palm Pilots. And I was following the lead of my friends at Kelby. Well, at the time it was called KW Computer Training. I was following their lead on how to be on camera, but man, I look back at those videos and there's a lot of cringe uh, associated with my on-camera appearance and performance. And um, But that was kind of the beginning. I was doing training videos with Palm Pilots and Palm actually found out about me through that. I wrote a book about Palm Pilots back then too. And they hired me, ultimately they hired me uh, as a contractor to teach employees at Palm how to use Palms. And that all kind of came from the video. But I've been on television. I've been on camera for a lot of companies. Canon USA, Sony, uh, GE, Lawrence Livermore Labs, the National Association of Broadcasters. And in all those different places, I find myself learning different things. What I noticed was when I was on camera uh, for B&H Photo and doing reviews of new camera gear for B&H. Now, B&H is the biggest camera vendor in the world. And I was doing their camera reviews. It was a lot of fun. It was fun getting new cameras before they came out and playing with the technology. And one of the things that was great for me in that experience was we were in an environment that was loaded with video professionals in a studio capturing me on camera. So I would do um, a 15 minute camera review on video and that meant probably 45 minutes in studio uh, just recording it. 
And then we go out and capture B-roll and do all kinds of things like that. And I found myself a little bit frustrated, certainly in the early days, when I would ask these video professionals I'm working with in studio, um, how do I look on camera? What about this? What about that? And I, I even remember one time going, hey, Dave, how do I look? And he said, oh, I don't see any moray. I think you're okay. And I'm like, I don't care about moray pattern interference. Do I look fat? You know, it was those kinds of things. And uh, so there was a lot of learning for me. And what's great is I was around video professionals who really knew how to light a scene, who knew where to put the camera, when to switch to a, a second view, those kinds of things. But they didn't know how to coach somebody who's on camera. Then I further discovered over time, you can go to learn how to be an actor and you can go and learn how to be on television news as a newscaster. But there wasn't any place that you could go to learn to be an on-camera presenter, a reviewer, an explainer, a teacher, a, a business person talking about your business. And so there were a series of lots and lots and lots of things I, I picked up over the years from a lot of fellow presenters on camera. And I also looped back. So I, I started the process of writing a book about all this because I had learned so much over the years about being better on camera. As I went back and started getting into uh, writing the book, I found myself going back to my college years where I have a degree in communications and I spent a lot of time studying nonverbal communications. So what kinds of things can you do, not on camera, but just in an interpersonal uh, interaction on a job interview, on a date? You know, what kinds of things do you do non-verbally that make you connect, that help you connect with the person you're talking to? And so a lot of those things do carry over into video the challenge is you don't get to see the other person as you're on video. And so you're talking to a little glass circle. Another challenge is video technology adds restrictions, punishments, environmental issues. I think everybody's heard the, the term or, or most people have heard the camera adds 10 pounds. Have you heard that one? No. Okay. Yeah, at least 10 pounds. At least. Yes. Camera, so the camera adds weight. Well, there are ways that you can use video to take away some of the, the weight. I can also tell you that, um, that there are a lot of variables in there that the camera can make you look more nervous. And, and even when you're not. So there are things that I've learned over the years about that. So I put all that together into a book and uh, wrote how to be great on, well, it's actually just called great on camera. It's about being great on camera. So, and it's not just looking great on camera because a lot of people focus on that, but it's, it's the look and it's a lot of other things as well. And when you first started, um, you mentioned, you know, 35 years ago, of yeah. course, that was way before YouTube uh, was even a thing. And uh, of course, these, all of the skills that you've just mentioned have become even more important now that we live in uh, in a world that's ever more video centric. You know whether that's YouTube, whether that's Reels on Instagram, whether it's TikTok, you know social media in general. Um, it's it's so much more of a video centric world now than it has ever been. 
you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, and I've spoken about this on, on this podcast many, many times, but when I was a kid, I started out in video. I, you know, I, um, when I was, I think, 12, maybe, or something, I bought, I, I, um, I, I got a lot of money for what we call a, what was it called? Um, it's almost like a bar mitzvah. It's not a bar mitzvah. It's called something else. I can't remember now. Um, confirmation. That's what they call it in German. That's it. So okay. it's like a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a th like religious thing. But anyway, so your, you know, all your relatives give you money, you know, da da. And so, um, and yeah, I was, I think I was 12 or 13 or something. And so all I wanted at the time was I wanted to buy a video camera. And back then, you know, home video cameras, um, became that technology was all of a sudden it was affordable. You know, you could, you could just go and, yeah. and drop at the time, probably a couple of thousand pounds or something or euros, whatever it was back then, Deutschmarks, what was it? I can't even remember. Anyway, so it was quite expensive anyhow. So, um, and, um, and so I, uh, all of a sudden I could make little movies in my home, you know, which was incredible because yeah. before that you had to have really expensive cameras, had to be in a studio, you know, you had to be like a professional broadcaster, that sort of thing, you know, but all of a sudden you could, you could actually do that. And I would spend the next seven, eight years literally going through life with this video camera surgically connected to my forehead. <laughs> you know? And I'd go around and I'd film absolutely everything, including myself. So I'd make little, I'd just make up little things. Sometimes, you know, I'd put scenes together and I'd roll a script and i shot that. And sometimes, you know, I just, me and my friends, you know, I had some goofy friends, we'd make up like a talk show or something like that, you know. And, um, and of course, it's a really interesting experience because, you know, you had to really, all of a sudden, you you had to become really aware of a lot of different things, you know. Um, of course, it's the the presenting, you know, you, the way you talk, your voice, the speed at which you talk, you know, um, all of these different things. Uh, you learn a lot about your own idiosyncrasies, by the way, when you look at yourself on camera. You know, that's a, that's a very interesting thing. Uh, but also, sure. you know, you learn a lot about lighting. That's really one of the things that really got me into photography, really, actually, in the end, apart from the fact that everybody around me seems to be a photographer. But... Um, you know, the lighting part to me, you know, I used to, I used to just experiment with different things. You know, I had like, I used to build scrims out of, um, what we call sandwich paper, which is this kind of translucent, you know, oh, yeah. paper that yeah. used to wrap sandwiches and stuff. Um, and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, this, everything was DIY at the time when I was like 12, you know, but it taught me a lot about lighting and how to, how to light things. And, you know, um, he talked about the camera adding weight, you know, I, as a photographer, I know that I can make somebody look slimmer just by the way that I like them. Well, I could give them more weight if I'm shooting somebody who's, for instance, very skinny, you know, and I just need to give them a little bit more presence in the photo. I know how to light them so that I can bring that out. But it, I mean, back then, because that probably goes back 35 years ago, I would say at least, um, you know, YouTube was, I mean, you couldn't even dream that up. I think at that yeah, time. Yeah. Did you did you have an inclination back then that video would become as important as it as it has done today? I saw no I had no reason to believe that it would. It's it's very incredible how integral video is in everybody's life. I mean, how many people do I see that are young kids walking through the store with their parents while their parents are grocery shopping and they're, you know, like this and, and 
tinkering and playing with the phone. And one of the other challenges then is you need to consider how that translates to the kind of video you're going to be on. And so if the only person you're ever talking to is somebody in your generation and you're in generation Gen Z, fine, talk like a Gen Z person. But if you're somebody older and you're trying to talk to younger generations or vice versa, you're going to have some challenges in just the words you choose. And that's just, just scratching the surface of how to get started with it. One of the other challenges is where is your video going to live? Because a lot of people now are used to filming video like this, vertical video, instead of like this. And if you're filming vertical video, but your finished product is going to live on YouTube as something other than a short, it's got to be made into a wide format video. And I know you've experienced all these things now, but there are so many things that people that are just getting into video because their phone has it are discovering the hard way or maybe not even discovering. So there's a lot that you do need to be aware of, but looking back at it, there's no way I could have predicted we'd be where we are right now. I remember when I was young and the phone was hanging on the wall with a curly cord and you know nothing wireless cordless, um, I used to watch Star Trek and I used to see them talking to one another on video and I was thinking, that's going to be an amazing future just if we have home telephones that are like a TV where you can talk to somebody else on their TV. And uh, I, I just couldn't predict where we are right now. It's an incredible uh, number of leaps forward and in a good way, in a lot of ways. Um, but it also, it gives a lot of us that get it like you, you studied film it, it for lack of a better term so having a camera as a young person you're looking at the lighting and the way the light falls on a subject you're i am sure looking at framing and camera position and camera movement and subject movement so you're looking at all those things from a lot of people look at it in from the perspective of filmmakers television uh, creators and they try and emulate those types of things. I never found myself doing that with video because I was always the guy on camera talking about a thing, whether it was on a TV show or in, a, in an explainer video or something like that. So I didn't come at it in, from the same direction that you did. And this is what was interesting to me is that the people that I worked with in studios were like you. They came at it from a creator perspective and they they would look at me and how I'm framed on camera and they'd go you look great and they've got their lighting down and they've got their backgrounds just right and they've got uh, an uplight for me because I need an uplight because I have these bags under my eyes and I know I need an uplight and by the way uplight okay so <laughs> Good I have to, I, I know I have to have that um, and so the video people, look at it from that perspective. The sound is good. My, my placement on camera is good, but I'm thinking about how am I as a presenter? And so that's where my harder focus has been over the years. Um, sorry, I went down that path, but, uh, yeah, it has, it has been a big learning experience for me 
as video has become part of our everyday lives. And that's a super interesting point um, you mentioned there because um, because I totally agree with you. Like I personally, you know, I came at it from somebody who lo- who loves imagery and I love lighting and all that kind of stuff. You know? And so, um, and also when I was a kid, I was really skinny when I was a kid, really, really skinny. Um, and um, and so I always had to find a way to make myself look, in, in a sense, hyper real when he came when he came to the camera, right? Because because I was just naturally super skinny, and I didn't I didn't want to I didn't want to look super skinny on camera, so I had to come up with ways to to you know yeah. negate that a little bit. Um, but of course, then as a photographer, you know, I'm I'm always concerned with how something's lit and you know. Um, and the background and the angle, the camera angle and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, what I've always loved about video is the fact that you can tell a story over time, which you, you, yeah. you can't tell a story in a photograph, but it's a site, you tell it in a different way. Um, you tell it in a frame or across a sequence of frames. But in video, there's like an additional dimension to it, which, which I love. I absolutely love the fact that I can tell a story over time. And, you know, you can, you can, throw somebody a hook or you can lead them in the wrong direction and you know and and then hold them back in and it's it's just all of that stuff that you can do when you're literally you know photographing all the time which is what how I think of video but when it comes to actually talking on camera and presenting something that for me personally was that was a massive learning curve and that really only happened with the um, with the advent of of YouTube, because you know, for me personally, much like like many many um, other creatives out there, whether whether it's photographers or filmmakers or or whatever, um, you know, when YouTube became a thing, and especially when the pandemic happened, you know, and yeah, I like many people, I'm sure, thought, oh, okay, well, you know, I've got a lot of time on my hands, got to do something, you know, what can I do? I'll do let's do a podcast, let's see how that goes. <laughs> You know, and then of course the next thing is like, okay, well, so a podcast technically is audio, but you know, it's a podcast about photography, uh, and I've got a whole <laughs> bunch of cameras there, so I might as well just actually also do a video version of it because why not? You know, that was kind of what you thinking. There was absolutely no other reason for for me or for Nick and I when we first started this uh, to. We never thought we're just going to do an audio version. We always realized we have cameras, might as well film ourselves. But like you mentioned. The real problem then became, you know, how. I mean, I couldn't listen to the. I say, well, I, I could not watch the first, I would say, 16, 17, 18 episodes because I just. Uh, it was such a massive cringe factor every time I'd see, or at least, especially my voice. There was, there was something about my voice I really disliked. I just could not stand hearing my own voice. Yeah. And. It completely crashed me out, and so I, I never actually watched the first, um, yeah, the first sort of sixteen episodes or something. And it was only after that that I sort of got, in a sense, I got used to hearing my own voice, and it became a little bit more um, acceptable to me. And that was, to me, that was a massive hurdle. And I know that, well, I assume that for many people out there who are toying with the idea of possibly creating content for YouTube. Um, I know they must be feeling the same. What would be your advice to somebody who's thinking like, how can I get over that feeling cringed out seeing myself on screen? Like, well, how do I do that? How do I get over that? 
There are actually a couple of things. You, you have very good points. Um, and I would say it is very accurate that everybody feels uncomfortable with how they look and sound in played back recordings. Um, I found the solution for the visual portion of it by accident. Um, I was doing a camera review for my friends at B&H and I had a studio set up in my house and I was taking all kinds of pictures, but I needed a model and my wife came home from work and walked in the front door and I said, come over here. And I took her over to the psych wall that I had set up and I wanted to take her picture and I had all these lights set up and she absolutely didn't want to participate at all. Didn't want to have her picture taken. She just finished a whole day of work, but she graciously went along with it. I took a bunch of pictures and then I went crazy and started printing out eight by 10 glossies of my photo session while she was calming down after work. And I gave her a stack of 12, all these different poses and everything. And uh, she looked through all of them and she goes, I don't like any one of these. None of them look like me. And I'm like, come on. And I, I love my wife and I love how she looks. And I'm like, this one looks like her and this is great. And I love this expression. And she didn't think any of them looked like her. And then I thought, okay, she doesn't see pictures of herself very much at all. She always sees herself in the mirror every morning, every evening, putting on makeup in the morning, those kinds of things. So I took three of my favorites and I printed out the mirror version and I gave her the stack with those mixed in. And she went back through them and she goes, okay, now this one kind of looks like me. Yeah, this one is okay. And she picked out the three that were the mirror image of her. So it's just a matter of, and then I pointed out to her, well, you don't get those. No, uh, but the whole reason that it happened is because it's backwards. So where her part is on in her hair was on the wrong side to her. And so I switched it up. And so it, it did open a, a little bit for me. And I tell clients now, okay, look at yourself on camera. And I show them a mirror image video of what they looked like on camera. And they're okay with that. And then I say, now we're not going to distribute this to the public because it's not what anybody else sees. It's only what you see. Unfortunately, there is no simple tech trick like mirror image for your voice. You just have to get used to it. And, and everybody knows that's looked into it a little bit. The problem is the way we hear ourselves when we talk is a generation of audio through the fluids in our skull reaching to our inner ear. And it's not because of what's coming in from the outside in our environment. It's an internal thing. And I would say that it, it was a cringe thing for a long time. I didn't like how I sounded on cassette recorders as a kid. And then later uh, on video as an adult, I just didn't like how I sounded. But when you do enough videos, it, it becomes where you can't where it's less annoying. I'm at the point right now that a lot of people would like to be, and that is, I can't tell the difference. It not only doesn't bother me, I can't hear the difference. So when I hear myself talking and I'm not on camera, and then I hear a playback of me having done a video, sounds exactly the same to me. So I'm just, I've gotten to that point. So I would say in the audio portion, you just gotta just put up with it. The video portion, you can try the mirror image thing and then realize, oh, that's not that bad.
Hey, let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode, Platypod. Platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity. With their stable, versatile, and portable solutions, you can capture stunning shots like never before. And I'm not just saying that. As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypod's incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, I'm surrounded by various Platypod products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home, in the studio, and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platypod's website at www.platypod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platypod Extreme, Platyball Tripod Heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platypod on Instagram and Facebook at Platypod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platypod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platypod, our amazing sponsor. Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. Yes, it's a really funny thing. It's um, it really. I mean, it took me, like I said, it took me a long time to get, especially the voice part of it. The from a visual perspective, what I've learned is uh, I've sort of you know I've worked with a lot of actors in the past, mainly mainly photographing them, but also because I've you know I used to be a musician, or I didn't used to be a musician. I'm still a musician, I guess, but I used to be a professional musician. Um, and so, you know, I, I work a lot with stage performers, you know, vocalists, obviously, do musical theater or, you know, or other stage work. And the, the one thing I learned, it's a very interesting thing, um, is that the difference between a stage actor or a theater actor and a film actor. You know, the, one of the, the biggest differences is that when you're acting on stage in a theater, all of your gestures, everything you do has to be amplified. It has to be huge because the audience sits relatively far away from you. And especially for those people in the last row somewhere in the theater, you're only like, you're this tiny from their perspective. And so everything you do has to be over-exaggerated, you know? Um, it has to be larger than life. You know, if you just like, if you just make a little eye movement or something, or a little eyebrow kind of movement, nobody's going to see that in the third row, exactly. right? Um, yeah. Film, however, is the exact opposite. You know, if you're like, if you've got the camera on you, and uh, you know, in a, and a close-up or something, and you want to convey some emotion with just the tiniest of movements. As a film actor, you've got to go. You know, you have to have that down, and it's literally just tiny little movements in the in the muscles in the face or something that can make a massive difference. And so, you know, the the one thing I've learned for me is that when I'm on camera, let's say I'm making a video for Platypod, you know, you can talk about it in a minute. Um, I'm a little bit more animated than I would be in real life. Like I'm ramping everything up to 120%, you know, rather than rather than I would normally be when I talk to somebody. Because I don't talk like this normally, you know, to people you know, all the time. That's that's just not me. But, uh, but for the camera, I've learned to just dial it up a little bit, turn it up, turn the energy up. And then when you actually watch it back, it seems almost normal because you're sort of used to seeing people almost like behave like that um in front of the camera because you kind of you have to get the entertainment factor in there um and so just like you mentioned earlier you know the camera puts some weight on you i always feel it also drains some energy from you so you could have to kind of compensate for that to get back to like a normal level do you think oh no question the um the thing that we're seeing a lot these days is people exactly doing what you're talking about on YouTube. And if you don't, you're not going to keep up with them. 
one of the big things, one of the big aha moments for me was uh, learning about a a technique, and and it's a it's a very interesting story if you're into this at all, and it is a way that I totally changed my presentation style, and I had been on camera for decades at the time, so I had been doing uh, B and H video reviews of camera gear for over a year. And my typical workflow is I would get the camera, use it for a week, try it in a lot of different situations. Then I would write a script. It had to go back to B&H so that their tech people could read through it and, and see that I didn't make any inaccurate claims. A lot of times they would try and send it back grammatically correct. And I'm like, don't worry about grammar because I'm talking, I'm not reading and it's not written that way. So don't worry about that. But I would get my script back and then I would read the script from a teleprompter. The pre-approved script would be read from a teleprompter with a teleprompter operator, a sound person, two camera people, and a lighting person all in the studio at once. Now, one weekend, all this is my lifestyle, and I would do these, these videos one or two per week with this team of very, very good uh, video and audio professionals. And I was walking through my own family room on a weekend and my wife was watching an awards show presentation. It was an interesting awards show about daytime TV. And what was interesting to me is there was no audience. There was just a presenter in a tuxedo walking through an empty studio. And the whole time he was walking, he was obviously reading from a prompter and the camera was moving and he's looking up at a camera that was on a boom. And what was interesting to me is that he was smiling like an idiot. Now, I was not watching the content. I was just watch. I walked through the room and I see this guy smiling so big and doing his presentation. And so when it got to the commercial, I looked at my wife and I go, what was this guy smiling about? That was crazy. And she said, oh, I didn't notice. What was interesting to mm-hmm. me then, Monday morning, I've got an approved script. Nothing else changed. Same people, same sets, same lighting. I go in and I thought to myself, I always try and start my videos with a smile, but I would always drop my smile one or two paragraphs in as I'm thinking about the content and making sure that I'm delivering properly and making sure I'm looking in the right place and I'm doing all the right arm and hand gestures and things like that. And I would drop my smile. But this time I just made it, that was my super effort. I was going to talk through my smile no matter what the entire 13, 14 minute review. And I did. And when I finished, same people, same everything. One of my people, my um, uh, teleprompter operator, Meredith said, did you go to a seminar this weekend? You are so much better on camera today. And this is after a year and a half of working with the same crew. And, and then David, my main camera operator goes, yeah, you were, you were on today. I made just as many spoken mistakes. I did all the same stuff wrong, but the whole time I was there on camera, I was smiling and I didn't tell him what I did for two weeks. What we ended up doing was finishing the process. Like we always did. We did a rough cut, sent that up to New York. And my supervisor in New York looked at that video and said, man, what did you guys change? Is Larry's mic different? Is there something with lighting? Something is so much better about this video. Whatever you're doing, you don't have to tell me, just keep doing it. And then two weeks later, I told everybody what I was doing and they all were like, 
no, that can't be it. It's not just a smile. And I said, yeah, it's just the smile. It's just me talking through my smile the whole time. And with that in mind, if you ever see me on camera, stop smiling and just get serious and start talking. And it's not a serious topic. Yell cut. Then we go back and re-record the same thing with me smiling. And it made all the difference in the world. That is the biggest coaching element that I have for a lot of people is if you're on camera, you need to smile no matter what, whether you're listening or talking or presenting, as long as you're not firing somebody on a Zoom call or getting fired, <laughs> you should be smiling. And it really makes all the difference for a lot of people. That's such a great tip. Uh, I, I'll task you to watch my, my next Platypod video <laughs> because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and put that into action. <laughs> That'll be funny. Well, now your videos are your videos are a lot of fun and they're high energy and you're doing quick cuts and you're jump cutting close and far. You have a style that really works and it is distracting and engaging enough that you could drop your smile. When I was on camera, I'm just holding the I'm just holding a camera body and trying to be engaging and connect with my audience. And yes, we would cut away to B-roll, but it was old school filming. It wasn't new, entertaining, high energy. And yeah, I told some bad corny jokes now and then, but it was nothing compared to what you're doing right now, which is very, very engaging. And I would say in your style of video that you've done for Platypod, you've done such a good job in presenting the, the use cases and the individual techniques and then you capture those on film with all that in mind i would say the need to smile is less critical with the exception of when you open and you're starting up and you're saying hey it's me again that kind of thing uh, mm -hmm. but other than that it's it's not as mission critical it's again that's a really interesting point you make because you know filmmaking in that respect or, or let's call it video making for intents and purposes um, has really dramatically changed um, over the last, I don't know, maybe six, seven years, I'd say. I mean, obviously, with the with the event of of YouTube, um, it's it's a lot faster. It's a lot, you know, it's it's a lot more high energy compared to what you know what would you and me are probably used to from like let's say the the nineties, you know, and and stuff like that. Um, even if I think, you know, if I think of you know, like uh, sales channels on TV, and I can't, I can't remember what they were called. Was it QTV or something like that? You, you know, the, you know the kind of the sales channels. Oh, yeah, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Um, even even that by modern standards now seems really slow, <laughs> slow and sluggish. It is, you know, because it it's it's a real um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a completely different animal now making making videos like that or content like that for for YouTube. Yeah. And so many of us, when we open a video, the first thing we look at is how long is this going to take? We look at the timeline to see how long the, uh, the message is going to take to, to deliver. And if I am looking for a quick tip to fix something and I Google it and it comes up with a YouTube, oh great, there's a YouTube video on how to fix this in this piece of software I'm trying to figure out. And the video is 55 minutes long. I'm not going to watch it. Now I watch video entertainment for 55 minutes but I'm not going to watch tips and tricks and training for 55 minutes to learn where a menu item is that I need in the software I'm using. 
Exactly, and that's even um, that's that's accelerated even with you know things like TikTok and Instagram Reels, for example, where it feels like it's it's going to be even quicker. You're going to get you know there's there's not even an introduction necessary. Where you're going to go straight to the point, and uh, you know and, and deliver the message right there in like under thirty seconds. Um, you know, with very often with things like you know the kind of content that we create for for Planetpod, for example, often there's a, there's quite a lot of information that you that you feel like you know, you have to bring across when it comes to you know explaining a particular uh, you know very particular subject whether that's like you know different ideas of how to create overhead shots or um you know toy photography was the, the last uh, the last video that I made um, great, it's quite great I have to interrupt that was a great video thank you for that <laughs> cool that was so much that was so much fun to uh, to make um, this you know, I'm not going to give too much away but there, there will be more along these lines um coming over the next over the next few months so yeah it's uh Very good. you know obviously um obviously the tools um and ingenious uh you know bits and bobs that we use uh, with platform really lend themselves to to photograph things like toys or miniatures and stuff like that it's, it's just a, you know, the perfect set of tools for that kind of thing so and there's sure. so much so much so much to learn when it comes to that um that you know it's yeah, it's it's definitely good. There, there are going to be follow up videos to that for sure, one hundred percent. Well, I I do love your style and your approach. It is current and contemporary and engaging, and it tells the story quickly. And I've learned things from each of your videos, whether it's the one with the uh, the scooter or uh, the the most recent video about toy photography. It was a very good video, and I've seen a lot about toy photography lately. Yeah, this this uh, it's really a thing. You know, it's it's a funny thing because I've never really, I don't think I was aware for the longest time that I, that there even was such a thing as toy photography. It was not really, I don't know, for some reason, it wasn't, wasn't on my radar um, until until I came across uh, the work of you know uh, Dave the Bear Maker or Jesse Pyrison, for example. You know, and for some reason, just their their content kept popping up on on my like social channels. And I got really fascinated with with the subject. And then when I started looking into it, I realized this isn't just, you know, there's, there's not just a, a couple of weirdos photographing their toys. This is a whole thing. Like there's a whole yeah. society. <laughs> this is like a whole, right. a whole huge thing. What? But it, it goes back to cinematography in the old days in TV with television and movie miniatures. Yes. And how they made legitimate films that we would go and and enjoy in the theater, and every time we saw a starship, it was actually a miniature that was four yep. or five feet long, and some great camera work to make it work. And so now, with the fact that toys are sold in incredible detail, that they yeah. used to be just smooth plastic that sort of had a shape and an image painted on it, now. It's amazing detail, and that gives the home collector or or toy enthusiast the opportunity to turn that into photographic art or video art. Exactly, and you know, I, I come back to you know when I first started uh, filming things with my video camera when I was like when I was a kid. Um, that's exactly what I loved. I love models. I've always loved models, um, and I used to build models. I I remember taking a. I remember I shot. 
I actually won an award once when I was a teenager for um, a little sci-fi um, sequence that I shot. It was all about a spaceship, um, and uh, I made I made it. So I kind of I made a spaceship model um, out of a Star Wars snow speeder from The Empire Strikes Back, um, but uh-huh. I modded that thing so it looked. I mean, really. I mean, it looked very different from the original snow speeder, but you know, if you if you knew, you knew. If you don't know, I mean, you know. Um, but uh, so I modded that thing, um, and it had um, all sorts of different things stuck on and glued onto it, and uh, resprayed and repainted the whole thing, whatever. So it, so it be- became its own little thing. Um, because uh, a friend of mine um, uh, was a uh, is a guy called Oliver Scholl who used to make um, miniature miniatures, and he used to build models for Hollywood. Um, but in Germany, so he used to work with um, some German directors on Hollywood movies, um, making these making these models. And I remember I remember going to his uh, apartment once and you know, looking at some models that he built, and I realized that that really half of the stuff on this model was there were like everyday items, you know, Allen keys, um, you know, lids of pens or whatever, all sorts oh. of crap that you could, <laughs> that you could yeah. just either stick onto onto a, a surface respray it you know spray paint it and all of a sudden it looks like it's some some pipe work that's like coming out of a spaceship or something like that you know it's, it's really it's always fascinated me and um it, but of course as a photographer uh, you know it's i really i love photographing people that's kind of what i do and i love lighting you know that's that's a, that's the thing i do and what i found really with toy photography it's the perfect perfect combination of those two things you can get creative with models um you know you can create backgrounds so like you know, like Dave DeBerwick or Jesse Fires, they they built these incredible dioramas I mean it's you know Dave even like he 3D prints elements of of of, of the, the background I mean yeah. it's just the the detail is just beyond belief you know um, and he spends hours and hours spray painting stuff and airbrushing things and and uh, it's just it's you know I remember when um, you know when I first came across that whole thing of toy photography I thought well, I, have, I have to get Dave and Jesse on the show I have you know I have to find out what this is all about I have to figure out how how they do this stuff you know I was super interesting and um you know and coming back to Platypot it's just the perfect really the, the perfect vehicle to teach some very very important things of photography lighting concepts being one for example you know sure. but it's this really cool combination of practical models photography lighting and post-production to essentially create an illusion of something that's supposed to look like it really exists but of course we all know it doesn't because it's ultimately it's just a 12 inch plastic figure <laughs> action figure you know no, that's the yeah. thing but it's that's the that's the really fascinating thing about it so yeah it's uh it's it's super super good fun um you know yeah just those. a few years ago i was doing some product photography and things like that. And I had a cocoon and um, some lights on the outside of it, but there wasn't the good available collection of small studio gear like you can get now. So like right now today, I can have something like this uh, platypod with the grip holding a light. And this whole thing, this is pro photography. Okay, so I can have this pro photography level equipment 
in a small area. So it might be toy photography, it might be food photography. And that's a luxury that I didn't have 10 years ago when I was doing food photography, product photography, things like that. You kind of had to just make do, do the best you could. And then one of the other challenges is if you want to learn studio photography and studio lighting and you want to do three-point lighting and maybe product photography or something like that, it was very expensive back in the day because you had to buy all the big lights and the big light stands. And then you had to have a place to put all of that. And now you can do all this in a spare part of a room, you know, in the corner of your office, you can set all this stuff up and have good quality, studio quality, highly controllable lighting and, uh, and products that help you do that as as a student as you're learning and and get along with it very well exactly and it's, it's a perfect way to learn so the principles of of lighting you know um, the principles of, of lighting you know a character or uh, or even an object if it's product photography you know it's it's, it's really the perfect way to like because light is light light is light it doesn't really matter whether it's a huge softbox or whether it's a, whether it's a tiny led panel and, and i remember you're talking to somebody about um about the panel pro LED panels, which which you've just you know you just had to add there, um, and I was talking to somebody about it. You know, I was saying like, oh, well, these are great, it's incredible what you could do with those. You know, and he was like, yeah, but you can't shoot headshots with that, can you? Because you still need a big, a big soft box and all that. You know, and I went, I immediately thought, well, can you? <laughs> you know, and I went like, I bet I can. I bet I can create some some pretty decent headshots with these things because you know, and the advantage being. Is that of course that gear? Um, as for those of you who have been following this podcast or the platform videos, will know by now that I love to travel on a Vespa, and that's how I get around most of the time. If it's not as freezing as it is right now, but uh, so you know, I like my gear to fit into small spaces. Like I like to get all my gear into my backpack or under the seat of the Vespa, and that's you know, it isn't a lot of space. So, um, so having gear that that takes up such a small footprint and yet allows me to create pretty much anything and everything I need to create is, it's massive, you know, it's huge. Yeah. And of course, when you combine that with things like miniatures or toy photography, you know, I mean, really the Panel Pro in relation to a toy car, let's say, is the equivalent of an automotive photo studio that uses a massively lit ceiling. Relatively speaking, it is exactly the same. So I'm not giving sure. away any more, but as we will see in the future, these tools allow you to create things that you, you, you never thought you could before. And so, so, you know, it's a, it's just, it's an incredible um, advancement in, you know, in technology and in, in the gear that we can, that we can utilize as photographers today. Um, and the creative opportunities that that affords us is just mind blowing. I mean, really, you know, and we're not even talking about AI. There you go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the nice thing is, so <clears throat> a lot of people are doing uh, Zoom meetings. We're, we're on a video call right now. And it's very easy to have two of these panel pros, one on either side of the camera, and as long as I'm not wearing glasses to reflect it back, in that case, then you move the lights up just a little bit further on your light stands. But 
those two panel pros and a, a light on my desk in front of me and I'm fine. I've got one light in the background and that's really all I need to give my face enough light. It's kind of interesting. <clears throat> I, um, I wrote the book great on camera, then COVID happened. Duh. And then a lot of people were doing zoom meetings and you'll, you'll appreciate this. Um, USA today saw a little promotional video I did eight or 10 minutes long about being on camera. And then, Oh, by the way, I wrote this book and they called, they called me and they started interviewing me for all these, uh, zoom meetings and what advice can you give to people and stuff like that. The ironic thing is the first round of that book, great on camera didn't even have a chapter about Zoom meetings. It was all about being on camera for business and explainer videos, training videos, things like that. So I did uh, a full article with USA Today and that turned into a series of articles. And then a number of other uh, organizations picked it up. Uh, I think the Washington Post and some radio and TV stations in New York called me for interviews. And out of all that, then I get this phone call from this guy at Microsoft and he says, Hey, we've got to teach all these fortune 100 executives how to be great looking, sounding on their zoom calls from their home. What's the light they need to use? And I'm like, you're kidding me, right? I, it could be anything. It might be a ring light. It depends on their camera. Which camera are they using? What is their environment like? Do they have lights behind them? Do they have a window behind them? What, you know, you, you can't just say that. I said, I'll be happy to help you and I'll do it for free for Microsoft. All you got to do is just let them know. Larry Becker is the guy that was coaching you through this to help you and your executives look better on camera and have the right lights. And he goes, nope, can't do it. Thanks though. Bye. <laughs> So, so he didn't want to do that, but, um, that, that was kind of an interesting time for me. And it, it really is the case. Uh, you can be great on camera with lights, like the stuff that Platypod has available. If you set them up in the right way, in the, in the right place, ring lights, they can be great. Again, if you're not wearing glasses, ring lights can be great. If your camera is centered in the ring of the ring light, your camera and lighting can be great, but I know a lot of people that thought, well, Man. it's all about the shape of the light and they would buy a ring light and then they'd put it up above their camera. And it's yeah. like, you lost the point. So, um, so yeah, there, there are a lot of possibilities, a lot of flexibility in having these smaller lights that we have available that we can buy and have in our home studio or near our desk. And it, uh, it really does a lot of great stuff. And I, yeah. like I said, I've got that up light filling in the, the bags under my eyes, uh, because I was taught that by a video professional. Um, one of the things, and, and it just is, uh, and everybody's got this. And so it kind of goes back to the original thing we were talking about is great on camera. Everybody has something that bugs them about themselves. And we've touched on our own voice and our own look, but anybody with a physical thing about themselves. So in your early days, you thought you were too thin. Since I was 18 years old, every morning I go like this and I put in a contact lens. So I've been pushing on my eye here every day, multiple times a day for my entire life. And now I've got these, and I naturally have it, um, 
inherited anyway. So I've got bags under my eyes. So I've got the this low light. And if I turn off my up light, you can see there's a little bit more of the bags under my eyes. And I turn on the up light. And I don't want to be obnoxious about it, but I turn on <laughs> the up light and it improves things. And I also yeah. discovered that when I smile, it hides those same under eye bags. And so I smile a lot more now also because I'm just a happy guy, but uh, it hides <laughs> that it hides that physical thing that I don't like about my own face uh, a little bit. And there's, there's a little bit of that for everybody, whatever your thing is that you're uncomfortable with about yourself, there are ways to take care of it. See, that's a really great idea. Now that you mentioned bags, I'm looking at my own bags. I'm thinking like, oh, okay, right. Next week, next interview I do, I was definitely going to have a, have a little up light on there. <laughs> I can attach it with a with a clamp and an elbow to my microphone stand, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. So yeah, it's um, I mean it's yeah it's it's a massive hurdle, you know. I just coming back to kind of you know how to get over, um, seeing yourself on camera or listening to yourself. It's a massive hurdle. To to me, um, it, it was such a steep learning curve, you know, starting this this podcast and, you know, talking to camera every week for. But this is episode 182. Let me see. This is episode 182. So for for 182 weeks, I've been doing this, and it really took a very long time for me to really become more comfortable with it. And you know, I still listen back to more recent episodes, and I think, okay, well, you know, I could change that, or I could change the other thing, or you know, um, I still find certain idios idiosyncrasies in my own pattern of speech, for example. That yeah. you know, ideally, if if there was such a thing as you know Photoshop for your own voice, I would probably Photoshop it out. Um, but at the same time, of course, there is very little editing in this particular podcast. I mean, there's virtually there's virtually almost zero editing as far as taking out filler words is concerned. And I know, well, you know, I know, I know lots of podcasts that really go meticulously through every single sentence. Sure. Um, I don't do that. There's no time. I've got to do these every week so <laughs> I don't have time to get into that much editing detail but um, don't blame you but you know it, it took a it took a really long time to to really get to that point one very big thing for me actually is um, I remember so you know I started this podcast with my friend Nick and we did I think we did about I want to say 110 115 episodes together I think as far as I remember um, and so the way that we used to do it was um, you know I'd do the pre-production we would meet up and we would record the whole episode and then he would edit it and then I would basically do the social media side of stuff. Um, and, and so he would take care of things, you know, he, he would basically make the edit look smooth and, you know, um, and he would take things out. Like, for example, say you're editing, uh, say you're interviewing somebody and you know, the other person is, is speaking and you're naturally agreeing with them. In a normal conversation, you would make noises of agreement. You know, you would go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. You would make these automatic noises, which in a conversation is great because it, it shows the other person that you're agreeing with them, you know, and you're on the same wavelength. Unfortunately, in a recorded interview, it's extremely flippin' annoying, <laughs> you know? And you've got to you've got to edit those out. And when um, when I started editing all the episodes myself, I realized how terrible I actually was at keeping my mouth shut when somebody 
else is talking. And, you know, I did I did maybe two or three episodes um, and I spent so much time just editing these annoying noises out that I thought, you know what, what I'm going to do is every time I find myself making a noise when somebody else is speaking, I'm just going to hit the side of my leg. And so for a few weeks, whenever, whenever I was interviewing somebody, I'd be going like, you know, and, uh, and that really got rid of it for the most part. And again, it's one of these things that it's much less annoying in the actual edit. Um, but of course, it saves me a ton of time as well, because I don't have to go through and edit all these little bits out, you know. And and so everybody has these little, these, these little what are they called? Autosyncrasies, idiosyncrasies. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, one of the things I know about myself, I use filler words quite a lot. So the word you know, or the phrase you know, I say it a lot. And if I could stop myself from doing that, that would be good. But that's another thing, I guess, that you have to just train yourself by actively listening back to what you're, how you're presenting, how you're speaking. And then you've got to eventually put these changes in place, right? Yeah, that's a that's a very important thing that a lot of people don't realize is going on. And um, what I noticed way back in the early days at Kelby, I would do a weekly update news video, four, five, six minutes long. And I would be talking to 70, 80,000 Kelby One members on a five minute video that we were about to post online. And in that video, I had to be excited about this cool stuff because I was. Uh, cool new things we were presenting for members. And then I would tell them where they could go find out about it. And then I would use the phrase, check it out. And I said, check it out way too many times in video. And I noticed that when I was editing, just like you, editing my own videos. And I would say, check it out. I'm like, man, I got to stop the check it out thing. So the first thing I did was I made a blooper reel of me just saying, check it out. Then I pulled from a couple different episodes. And then in the next episode, I said, apparently I have a problem saying, check it out all the time. And then I showed the outtakes of the video and I was just check it out, check it out, check it out. And then I said, so I'm going to start a contest. And anytime I say, check it out more than once in a news episode, I'm going <laughs> to give the first person who sends me an email a free ticket to something, you know, I don't remember what it was at the time. And so that turned on my awareness to not do that anymore. One of the things that you don't do, but a lot of people do when they very first go on video is they're using filler words as they're thinking. And they use words like, um, and, uh, and a lot of us do those. And I still use the word, um, occasionally there's no problem with that. The problem is when you do it a lot and you're thinking a lot on video and what people don't realize is if you can figure out how to replace um with silence you sound smarter you sound like you're pausing to think and and consider something and you just come across as a much more intelligent individual and all you're doing is saying um inside your own head the other thing and i i call them a, a verbal crutch there are so many verbal crutches and different people back when i worked in the kelby studios regularly Everybody had their own verbal crutch. I'm not going to say who, but there was a guy that would always say, and you turn around and. So he'd explain something and he'd go, and you turn around and, and then he'd finish the thought. There was another guy that I worked with who was a stage actor. And his thing was, he would be reading a script on a prompter. 
he didn't like to pre-read and study his scripts. That was a problem. But he wanted to be cold and do it live and do his energy and do his acting. And in order to give himself a break to read a little further ahead in the script, every time he got to the word and, he would say, and the next thing we're going to cover is this. And what that means for you is, and the word and got this obnoxious three-syllable emphasis every time he said it. And it was pointless. Everybody does something different wrong on camera. And it's just a matter of be aware of it yourself. Ask friends to watch your videos and tell you what you're doing wrong. And then listen to them and take their advice and see if there's not something that you can do to fix that. And a really good trick that's worked for me um, in guitar playing, for example. Um, so, you know, as a sort of little thing in brackets, I used to, uh, I used to be a, a session guitarist. So I used to make my living playing the guitar. Um, but of course, when I, again, when I was a kid and I was learning how to play guitar, um, I used to, I used to love coming up with things myself, like little riffs. I used to write little bits, you know, music and whatever. And of course, the thing is, when you've when you've just come up with something, you think like, "Oh, this is the coolest idea I've ever come up with." Um, you're almost like self hypnotizing yourself into thinking like, "This is the best thing since sliced bread," right? It's like this is so awesome. And so, what I used to do was, uh, in order for me not to forget that little idea, I used to record it. And I used to have a little voice recorder. You remember these little uh, micro tape uh, voice oh, yeah. recorders that you have? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had one of those, and I used to just record, you know, that little riff or whatever that little bit of a solo or something like that that I just come up with. And then uh, what I did was I, I used to take the tape and I would put it into a shoebox and I would leave it for six months. And six months later, I would go back to that tape and I would listen back to it. And remarkably, I'd listen to the exact same recording that six months earlier I thought was the best thing I'd ever played. I'd listen back to it and I'd be like, man, my string bands were out completely. They were like totally out of tune. My timing was terrible. Um, you know, that idea didn't work at all. And it's just really interesting how your objectivity is, is uh, you know, just not present when you're in the moment. You, you're just completely subjective. There's just, you know, just no way you can objectively um, evaluate anything when you're just doing it or once you've just done it. It just takes that little time in between to come back to something, revisit it, you know, and then critically analyze it and go like, well, actually, no, this isn't this is by far as good as I thought it was when I first recorded. And so I do that sometimes with uh, Camera Shake episodes where I go back and I listen to an episode like from two years ago, for example. Um, you know, my <laughs> the thing that I do very often and I highly recommend people do is to listen to, go back to, to episode one um, of the Camera Shake podcast. Uh, and you'll agree with me, that's probably one of the most cringe-worthy things you've ever seen. <laughs> to me, it is anyway. Um, but what it does, it does two things. Uh, first of all, you know, it's... Um, it shows me how um, how much progress I've made personally for myself, you know, on talking on camera. Because the thing is, just, just like guitar playing, it can be really frustrating because you're always there when you're practicing every single time. To you, your progress seems potentially not, it might feel like you're not making any progress. Yet, when yeah. your uncle or your aunt or whoever comes to visit you every so often and they go like, oh, your playing has improved so much since the last time I saw you. You go like, well, I can't see that because I don't think so. Like, you know, and it's because because you're always there and you're always listening to yourself when you're practicing, 
you don't notice that incremental improvement in your playing. And it's the same yeah. with, it's exactly the same with presenting on video. Um, you know, it, it's a really good idea sometimes to just go back and listen to something that you've done a few months earlier and then just think like, oh, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. Or that's really obvious to me now, so I can work on that and I can, I can change that thing about my presenting style. And it may be, it may, it may have something to do with your voice, with your speech pattern, with the way that you present, um, the speed at which you talk, um, your gestures, your hand gestures, for example, just your whole posture or whatever it may be. There's, there's so many different things. Yeah, no question. And you'll be your own best critic at that point. But at the same time, there are things you don't know you do. And there are things that I see professional broadcasters. There is a particular broadcaster on television and radio and one of his verbal crutches, whether he's talking on television as a presenter or doing a commercial, he'll say now, just start a sentence with now, the next thing that's going to happen now, now, now. And once you tune into that, drives you crazy. It's like so. I hear so many people starting this, the first the first word they say in any sentence is so blah 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 blah. So this and that, right? And it's just once my brain locks onto that, it's I cannot unhear it, and it drives me nuts. <laughs> you know? I got a few more. I got a few more for you. If you are ever watching an interview and the interviewer asks a question and the answer is going to be yes from the interviewee, and they're talking about their their business, you know, has your business benefited from such and such? The person answering the question is always going to say the word absolutely. They do all the time. Drives me crazy. Uh, one of the good things that I can help people with is when you make mistakes, don't say sorry, or what I meant to say was, or something like that. There's this awesome word I learned from newscasters, and it's the word rather. So when you go down a rabbit hole and you're saying the wrong phrase or word or describing something incorrect, incorrectly, rather, what you wish to say is the word rather. That, that just says, ignore what I just said, pay attention to what I'm about to say. It takes the place of what I just said, and it's just two syllables. It's rather. Another interesting thing is, and I was so bad at this at the beginning, uh, and probably for a long time, I wanted to sound smart on camera. And so, which also generally is a bad approach to things. You don't want to sound smart. You want to sound brilliantly capable. And you want to seem as if what you're explaining is very easy to you and not an issue at all. And that's why you don't need to get serious when you're describing a topic. You want to stay happy, friendly, upbeat, smiling. And when you're doing that, you don't want to use multi-syllabic vernacular does not make you sound smart. It makes you sound off-putting, you know, kind of distant. And there's one word, and this is just my little hitch, one word that I see or hear YouTube presenters that want to appear smart as a trainer say is the word utilize. They say, all you need to do is utilize our preferred software approach. Uh -uh. Just say, all you have to do is use our software and you can get into, so you're making it approachable. You're making it accessible. You're being friendly and you're simplifying. 
But when you say utilize to try and sound smart, you don't sound smart. You sound like you're trying to sound smart. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, and again, that's a really uh, worthwhile lesson that I learned over time is to just be I mean. I think it was actually my wife that, that uh, mentioned that to me a, a little while ago. I remember um, I, again, in my former life as a musician, um, I used to teach. And um, and I uh, I spent decades teaching individual and small groups, and then eventually I found myself teaching classrooms, and um, classrooms in particularly in primary schools, so little kids, right? About you know any nine to eleven year olds, let's say, and I really had no no prior experience in communicating with kids of that age because I don't have any younger siblings. And I didn't have kids at the time, and I really had no no relationship with with kids of that age. So I had absolutely zero idea as to how to communicate with with kids of that age. And so, you know, I remember the first year I taught, um, I tried to be, you know, I tried to be nice and friendly, and I, you know, obviously I was kind of the cool guy because I had a ponytail. Um, you know, I, all the other teachers were wearing suits, and there's me, you know wearing jeans, coming in with a guitar, you know, I'm the cool guitar teacher, da da da. And so I, I tried to be nice and friendly and, you know, and they ran circles around me. There was zero chance. I mean, I had no chance of of creating like discipline in a classroom or anything like that. It was terrible. And it was really stressful. I found it really stressful. Um yeah. Because, you know, although I, I enjoy teaching, it's very difficult when you have a whole class and you're constantly having to tell them to be quiet or, you know, um, it's, it's very, very difficult. They're all armed with guitars as well. So they're immediately in a position where they can make a lot of noise really, really quickly. And that's all they want. They just want to strum strings. But if you're explaining something, you can't have 30 kids, you know, <laughs> strumming their guitars because you can't hear yourself think when that's happening. So, um, so I was really, really frustrated by the end of the first year. And so I thought for the second year, I thought like, you know what, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I can't, like this drove me nuts. I can't carry on like that. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I, I watch all the other teachers, like the math teacher and the, you know, the, I don't know, the, the English teacher, whatever, and the geography teacher. They're all really strict. Like they're really strict. So I'm thinking, now oh, maybe that's what I'm going to try. I'm going to be the strict teacher, right? Okay, so I tried that. Uh, that completely backfired. Um, so the second year wasn't any easier because... Because, you know, I'm just naturally not, I'm just not that guy, you know, I'm just not, that's not my personality. I was completely working to totally, completely against my old personality. And nine-year-old kids are extremely smart when it comes to that. They can see right through you. If you're putting on an act and you're pretending to be someone you're not, they can see right through you. And that completely did not work at all. So... By the third year, I thought, wow, I don't know where to go from here. Like, I tried the nice approach. I tried the strict approach. It's just not working. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Like, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm just not, I'm just not made to, to teach kids of that age. And my wife, who's a, who's a primary school teacher, an expert, actually, um, she said to me, look, you've got such a, yes, you have such a personable personality about you. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. And, you know, be firm but fair, but just be yourself. And I thought, okay, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to try that. And that worked brilliantly. And that was the moment right. when I remember waking up 
on a, I think a Wednesday. It's a Wednesday I was I was teaching. Well, yeah, it was a Wednesday I was teaching those those classes. I remember waking up in the morning dreading having to go to school, having to go to work, because I was just dreading that day. I mean, it was horrendous. But figuring out how to be myself in front of in front of those kids um, turned that from being the most dreaded day to being my, my most joyful day of the week. I, I absolutely loved it. And since then, I actually, I love teaching younger kids. I love it. It's That's the one part of uh, teaching guitar that, that I've learned to to absolutely love. And I found that when it comes to doing a podcast, talking to the camera, presenting something, I think I've learned that that's, it's, to me, that's a really important factor. It's just being yourself, letting your own personality come through and being genuine and authentic. Um, it, it will just communicate so much better because you're not putting on an act, if that makes sense. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I still think the camera adds 10 pounds, takes away 50% of your smile, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, so you still yeah. have to you still have to push through to be yourself sure. a bit more. Yeah. But you have to be like absolutely 20% when it comes of yourself. To, <laughs> when it comes to delivery style and the language you choose to use and the way that you say it, I'll give you a very specific example that I used to use in B&H. The one of the features and functions of a camera is how many frames per second it shoots. And so in my script, I would say this camera captures 12 frames a second because that's how I talk. This cap, this camera captures 12 frames a second. You know what I mean? That sounds conversational. But if I'm reading from a script from a teleprompter and I say this camera captures 12 frames per second, it, it sounds wrong. It sounds stilted. It sounds, uh, just incorrect. It's not my personality. And so I would write, it shoots 12 frames a second. And then the tech support people at the tech readers and proofreaders and checkers at B&H would send back and go, no, it's not 12 frames a second. It's 12 frames per second. And I go, okay, thank you. And then I would change it back because I want to read it the way that I would read it on the teleprompter. And yeah. so those kinds of things really do matter. It's the, the teleprompter thing is actually something again is it, that I've learned to to love really, but it was it was definitely a process. Um, one of the things I've found is, especially when I started making videos that that were more, they had to be more concise. You know, a podcast like this, I I have the freedom in a sense, I have the freedom to waffle on and uh, you know be completely conversational, and not a lot is scripted in in this podcast except for. Maybe the intro and maybe the outro, but that's you know that's that's it. But everything else, apart from that, it's not scripted at all. Um, yeah. In a video like the videos we make for Platypod, for example, you know, and and videos of a similar ilk, um, it's much more difficult because you need to be really concise and you need to pack a lot of information, very concise, precise information into a very short amount of time. Um, and so what I've found is is that for me, scripting that makes it a lot easier to make sure I've got all the information in there, everything is accurate, I'm not forgetting anything, I'm not leaving anything out, and I'm making all the points in a logical order so that I can progress whatever it is that I'm teaching throughout that video um, so that it's progressive. Because that's the, the, 
the secret behind effective teaching is progression. You know, you always want to create a progression route, whether that's through one video or actually, you know, if you're, if you're doing a course, for example, for something, you need to have a progression route through that course so that you can make sure that you're not losing your, your students halfway, you know, you need to make sure you can, you can take everyone with me. And it's, it's, a, it's a simple, you know, step-by-step approach. Um, but so for me, using the teleprompter and scripting out um, all of my talking parts, that uh, has been extremely useful. First, I mean, for the reasons I've just mentioned, but also because it actually saves me a lot of time in the editing process. Because first of all, I can make sure that I've got all the information that I have. Um, I, I go to the length of scripting out not only my dialogue, but also all the B-roll shots that you'd see in a, in a video. Because I'll go through the script and I literally list out all the B-roll shots. So what I have is a complete shot list of the A, the a roll, that's me talking, and all the B-roll that I need to shoot in order to outline, visually outline all the things that I've just been talking about. So so it, um, it reduces the amount of time needed to actually do the production side of the video. It reduces, dramatically reduces the amount I need in post-production because I already, I could just, because I added to the script, I can see the script. Okay, well, that's, that's the first, you know, chapter of my, my talking bits. And these are the B-roll yeah. shots that I've shot and I've put them in the air and that's that, you know, and so I can go through the edits relatively quickly and put the whole thing together relatively quickly. So, but, but here's the big but. Um, so working with a teleprompter, like I mentioned, for those reasons has become almost a must. But what I did find hard to get used to was um, to, how can I put this? Um, to, oh, what's the word? To, I had to put a lot of my acting skills into my voice because I'm obviously not talking freely, I'm reading. And um, just to, I had to really learn how to manipulate my voice so that it doesn't look or it doesn't sound like I'm, I'm reading off of the script. People are often, uh, often obsessed with, you know, looking at your pupils, you know, where like, okay, well, you can see in your eyes that you're reading because you're, you're, you know, your iris is going from left to right. But actually, the much more difficult part is, is to not sound like you're reading. That's what I found the most difficult part. Yeah, there are, <clears throat> there are a lot of teleprompter challenges. One of them is when you write and you read back what you've written in your own head, in your own voice, echoing in your brain, you don't hear the spoken issues that you're going to have. So what I found when I was doing those B&H scripts every single week is once I would write a script, I would read it out loud. I'd shut my office door and read it out loud because there would be some form of alliteration or some form of something that my brain, I, I could write it. It makes perfect sense. Anybody reading this could make perfect sense from it. But as I'm speaking it, if I'm saying uh, a word that starts with the letter T, four times in a row, then it just sounds really bad. Other things that can be a problem, what you're talking about is trying not to sound like you're reading can be a problem. And what I coach people a lot of times is, and, and I had a, um, a head of the local uh, real estate organization in Central Florida. She was used to being on camera. 
a very attractive young lady, uh, and, and she had been in uh, contests and competitions and had spoken on camera, had no issues, no troubles there at all. But she had a script that she wrote and was reading it from a teleprompter, and every time she got to a period, she went down. And so that sounds like you're reading because if you always end and you go down, it sounds like you're reading. And it doesn't sound like you're excited. And it doesn't sound like you're conveying a good point. And so what you need to understand is you need to end some of those sentences going up. We always do that when we're conversational and we're asking a question, but sometimes when you end a sentence going up and you're not asking a question, it's still okay. That's all right. What you don't want to do is end every sentence going up because then you sound like you're from Southern California and it's a <laughs> type of speech called upspeak and it's what young girls got credit for doing and they were doing it all the time. And if you look back in movies from the 1990s and you look at a girl that was like 22 years old in 1990s and she was always ending at upspeak, it drives you crazy. So you don't want to do upspeak. You don't want to do downspeak. You don't want to adopt a growl unless you're Matthew McConaughey. You can do the growl. But there, there are so many things like that. And what I ended up doing a lot of times in my own scripts in the early days was to coach myself to end up by actually putting a question mark at the end of a sentence in a script that wasn't even a question. And so that way I would remind myself to go up. One of the other things that I needed to do was emphasize, so I'm smiling through my videos, and I love camera gear. And I love certain features and functions in camera gear. And so I would say, this is the first camera that has an STM lens. And you know, it's gonna be the same autofocus we're already used to, it's gonna be quick like that, but it's silent. So now if we're actually capturing, you don't have that little buzz sound for the autofocus to distract your client who you're taking a picture of, or if you're shooting video, it's not gonna be making that buzz noise that gets picked up by some of the microphones. It's just a fantastic new feature, this STM lens. And so I would get excited and, and get into it. And so I would say that would be a, a helpful tip for a lot of people is exactly what you're, you are talking about. And that is put in some acting skills, put in actual visible energy, realize that the camera takes away some of your visual energy and some of your smile. So you have to add it back in, in a little bit higher level in order to come across as that person. And I can tell you that you feel like when you're doing this, don't you feel like you're an idiot, like you're overdoing it when you're first learning that skill set? Absolutely. Then you, then, you, then you figure it out. So it does make a difference, even though it feels wrong. And one of the things that I used to do right before I went on camera, when I was first learning this smile on camera thing all the time, is I would get to the, the desk in the studio and I'd go like this. I'd go, okay, give me just a second, guys. <laughs> and I would just get my muscles in my face to where they were comfortable holding a smile expression. And then, uh, then we could start rolling and it would stick with me most of the time. 
Yeah, because that's that's a real thing. It's you know sometimes uh, you know when you're when you're getting ready to record, you might not necessarily have had the greatest of days. You know, you might not necessarily be in the right frame of mind. But unfortunately, when the camera turns on, you've got to be on. And so whatever it takes, you know, whatever your thing is that can get you into that frame of mind, you know, that can get your energy up, um, you know, that that'll work. I remember, you know, as a as a performing musician. You know, before you go on stage, you got to get the energy up because everything you do on stage is amplified. You know, you don't like I don't run around in everyday life swinging my guitar left and right and, and looking like a complete idiot. You know, of course not. But on stage, that's what people that's what people expect. The audience expect that visual part of the show. That's why even in the language, you know, we say now we say this when um, I, I judge the Battle of the Bands uh, competition, for example, and I always say that to some of the contenders, you know, when it comes to the stage performances, you know, remember that even in the English language, we say we go and see a gig. We don't say we go and listen to a gig. That's not how we phrase that in the English language even. So that tells you a lot about which sense um, is is sort of the, the priority sense when it comes to when it comes to taking in what's happening on stage. It's, you know, it's, it's the, the visual sense. And so... Um, so being over the top, getting that energy, keeping that energy level high, um, that is super important. And and whichever way it takes you to, to get yourself there is fine. Um, I remember like we used to jump around. I used to jump. I used to jump up and down, you know, for a couple of minutes and that would get my heart rate up. It would get my energy levels up and, you know, I'd be psyched and ready to go on stage. And then I'd land on stage and I'd be ready to go, you know, um, and that was, that was the thing. Um some people do other things. Um, I have to psych myself up a little bit. Although, I have to say, I mean, I have, personally, I have the advantage of, I, I mean, I record all of those videos in my own home. So, in a sense, my kids already know that I turn into a complete idiot when I, re- <laughs> when I record stuff. So, you know, that's not a hindrance for me anymore. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I can just psych myself up really quickly and, and, and get into it. You know? And it, it's, you get better at, at it as you're doing it, which is why I always say, you know, just like with podcasting and making videos or whatever, it's, you know, and actually this is the thing that, that underpins this whole podcast. You know, in the beginning, we knew, Nick and me, when we first started this podcast, we knew that the first episode was going to be terrible. Yeah. And it's, it's a thing talked about on the, on, on the podcast a lot. Um, we didn't know how to make a podcast, but know where podcasts lived. How did, how did you make a thing like that? Like where, how do you get it onto, how does it actually, like, how does this whole thing work? No idea. Um, and we figured, you know, we're just going to have to set a time and a day when we're going to record the first episode and we're just going to have to figure it out between now and then. And then we're just going to press record and, and we're going to go. And so we knew that the first episode wasn't going to be particularly awesome. We knew it was going to be terrible, which is why we called it done this better than perfect because we realized it didn't have to be perfect. It most likely wasn't going to be perfect, but we just had to get it done. And then we also realized that if we could stick with it, then episode 10 would in all likelihood be better than episode one and episode 20 would be better than episode 10. And if we made it to episode 50, that would in all likelihood probably be a whole lot better than episode 10. And so, you know, and that was, that was the, that was the thinking behind it. And that's to me, that's always the thing Like when you, when you do a thing like, you know, if you're thinking you you want to set up a YouTube channel, for example, or you want to make videos, um, where, again, whether it's for reels or TikTok or whatever it is, you just have to get started. You know, get that stuff out there, get yourself in front of the camera, you know, watch your stuff back, um, be critical, 
improve on the things that the mistakes that you find and the things where you think like, oh, I can do this better try it it may not work out and you might actually think well uh, no I tried to fix this but it's actually worse than it was before I'm going to go back to the first bit uh, and so you just work yourself through it step by step until you get to the point where you're happy with with what you're doing that's that's sort of always been my kind of attitude to it I guess yeah, yeah and it, and like we talked about earlier it's always good to have an honest critic don't go to somebody that um, I, I would never take my early videos to my mom. She'd go, oh, this is great, son. This would be wonderful. I can't believe it. You know, she would be, she's my best fan, right? But didn't help me at all in fixing things that were wrong. And if my mom said, that shirt is not good on you on camera, then it was horrible because she never criticized, you know, the, the thing. She was my number one cheerleader. So these days... If I show a video to my wife and say, what do you think about this? She'll be honest with me. I mean, we get along great, but she is the best critic I can have because she'll tell me straight up, why are you, why are you looking at the camera that way? Why did you have that in the background? Why are you doing that other thing? Why did you use that word? It's, it's those kinds of things. The it's downside is she's not into the tech that I'm into, so she wouldn't pick up on those things. But she does pick up on presentation style and cadence and vocal uh, presence and my smile. She's kind of tuned into that. So it's those kinds of things that I do appreciate. And I, I want that from other people. And in fact, locally, I do video production, but I also get hired by other video companies to be their critic and also to be their coaching their on-camera talent to help them be better on camera. It sounds like our wives are fairly similar. Um, my wife has zero interest in cameras um, or in photo, well, in photography really, but especially in the technical side of things. Um, but she actually, she did go to film school um, and her, her thing was script writing. That's, that's, that was her, you know, her deal. And so it's, it's interesting when we watch a movie because uh, you know, we'd be watching the same movie and I'd be saying like, Oh, look at the color grade and the color grade is amazing. The way that's lit is phenomenal. And she'd be like, yeah, but the, the dialogue's terrible. <laughs> like, okay, I didn't hear that. <laughs> I didn't hear what they were talking about. I was just like, you know, that color grade on the sky was just phenomenal. <laughs> you know, but she, I mean, she's the same. Like she'll, um, she's, she has zero interest in the, in the technical side of things, but she will, you know, when I play her um, videos or something, I, I have her as my, um, I, I do use her as my sort of stopgap critic type of thing. And she'll, she'll tell me if she thinks, you know, that maybe there the energy wasn't high enough or that sounds a bit weird, you know. And I've, I have the other thing, the other disadvantage is that I'm not a native English speaker, of course. So I have to actually check a lot of the script or I have the script checked by my wife who will look through it and will be like, well, you wouldn't say it like that or that's not accurate or, you know, you wouldn't like, you know. And then it was actually, I tell you what, it was interesting when um, I first started writing blogs for, for websites. And, um, and so I, my writing style is actually very simplistic. I write the way I talk. Um, my, I, I think my personality just comes through in the way that I write, you know, I have a, a, a fairly sensible sense of humor, I guess. And, you know, I always try to put that in there and it comes, it comes through. They are not technical manuals. If, you know, I'm not the guy who writes that kind of technical, technical stuff, right? That's just not me. My wife, however. First of all, being a teacher and 
coming from a script writing ba- uh, background. Um, and uh, I have to say, she has a phenomenal talent in writing letters of complaint to all sorts of institutions. Brilliant. But she'll basically, when I first started writing um, writing blogs, I would I would give her the blog to read before I'd send it off. She would look through it like, you know, grammar mistakes and whatever. Um, and uh, and then she would always say, oh, yeah, but that's, you can't, you can't say it like that, you know? And then she would rewrite a paragraph and I would look at him like, yeah, but I don't talk like that. That's not, to me, that doesn't sound, that's just not me. And so over time, we've been able to, to get to that point where she knows and, and understands the voice in my head. And when she reads through something, she can now detect whether that sounds like me or not. And I, I find that very, very useful um, to have somebody like that who can basically look, you know, look through a script and go, yeah, that actually sounds like it's you saying that and not somebody else has written that for you. It sounds like the voice in your head, basically. So, you know, that's, I find it extremely useful to have somebody to double check your, your writing. Oh, that's true. And it's, it's very important that you explain something that you talk, that you teach, whatever it is that you're doing to come across on camera if you do it in language that's comfortable to you. So the best way I like to look at it is when you're writing a script, when you're deciding how you're going to explain this new thing your company is doing or what you do at your company or whatever it is that you're teaching, how to use this product. When you're doing that explaining, you want to talk to a 12 to 14 year old. You don't want to talk to an elementary school kid. And so you're talking down and using tiny little words and go, does that make sense, Bobby? You know, that kind of thing. And you don't want to talk to a college kid or somebody that's your peer that has graduated with a degree and you're talking to somebody else in your industry. You want to talk as if you're talking to a friend and use friend words and friend sounds and and phrases. And then also simultaneously, you want to be able to explain and unpack it to a professional or to somebody who's not a professional in your industry, who doesn't know all the tech, doesn't know all those terms. And so it's, it's a matter of finding that friendly way to communicate, not talk down, but not talk over their head and not assume that they know a lot of the tech of something. And uh, it's a, it's a fine line, but it's worth doing that. And then if you can find somebody like your wife or like a coworker or a friend who you can uh, put the video in Dropbox and have them watch it and go, does this make sense to you? What about at the two minute mark where I was doing that deep explanation of that new tech? Does that make sense to you? Do you have questions about it? And if that person is somebody that maybe is a photographer, but doesn't know that idiosyncrasy of some new filter that you've got, then they can come back and go, yeah, I still don't understand this, this, and this. So you do also have to pick people that can help you that are at the right technical level as your audience is going to be. But uh, yeah, it's always worth it to have somebody come back and, and correct you and make you uh, present in a little bit better way. Phenomenal. Um, I've certainly taken many, many notes here <laughs> because, you know, all this is extremely useful stuff. Larry, what would you say to somebody who is maybe thinking about setting up a YouTube channel or creating video content on social media? Um, what would, if you had to give them one 
golden nugget of a tip, what would you say to them? Yeah, what I would say is study your audience avatar, find your avatar, and then be sure that the content you create delivers to that avatar in a way that they expect by studying the market of other things that avatar consumes so that you're talking like that person talks. I will tell you a very specific example that very young people start conversations all the time by saying, hey, what's up? And then they talk. And if you're in person, hey, what's up is fine. If you're on video and you go, hey, everybody, what's up? They can't answer you. So you start off, very first phrase you say is fake, phony, lying. To somebody who's like me, who understands that the phrase, hey, what's up, means I am starting a conversation with you and I care about you and I want to know what's going on with you. What's up? And then you shut up and you listen to them to the, oh, not much or, you know, how's it going? That kind of thing. If they tell you, great. And if they say, oh, I'm fine, then you continue on with what you were going to say. But starting a video by saying, hey, hey, everybody, how's it going? So today I want to show you basically what you're saying is, hey, everybody, watch me. I don't care what you have to say. I'm about to talk. And that's all that matters. Yet, if your audience is young, you can say that because it doesn't mean the same thing to those people. So that's why I go back to know your avatar. What do they watch? How do they consume things? What do they watch a lot of? Can you create something in that fashion, in that style, in that presentation uh, style so that you're serving your avatar in the best way possible? And if your avatar goes across a number of age groups or educational experiences, be respectful of that when you create your content. Sorry, that was a long answer to a brilliant short question. Fantastic. Larry, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for being the guest on the Camera Shake podcast this time. I'm, I'm sure it'd be one of many times. Um, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks for all those cool videos you create. You're inspiring me too. Okay, folks, that's all for today. It was great fun catching up with Larry on the show, as always. Uh, but before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you'll like. Check out episode 103 with Adobe legend Russell Preston Brown. I'm sure you love it. If you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com to help us continue creating and bringing you more exciting episodes. I just made a little end uptick that, uh, that Larry talks about there earlier. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, here we go. Um, it's uh, yeah, it really does mean the world to us. So any any support is is very welcome. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, be reminded that there's a fully flashed video version over on YouTube in full Technicolor, uh, where you can see all the photography that we're talking about um, on the YouTube video as well. So thank you very much for watching and listening, and we'll see you again next Thursday. Uh -huh.